Park here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The Lambda Days is coming, taking place the 13th and 14th of February 2020 in Krakow, Poland. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. For two days, you are at the center of the functional programming world. It is a place where academia meets industry, where research and practical application collide. Find out what is possible with functional programming. Explore the latest in battle-tested Scala, Erlang, and Haskell. Experience the energy F-Sharp and Elixir bring to the table. Meet the innovators working with Elm, Unit, and OCaml. See what they come up with next. This year, they join forces with the trends in functional programming, who will be running two dedicated tracks, showcasing the latest academic research on functional programming. CodeBeam San Francisco will be taking place on the 5th and 6th of March 2020. Join the only North American conference to cover all of the game languages, including Erlang and Elixir. Created for developers by developers, CodeBeam SF is dedicated to bringing the best minds in the Erlang and Elixir communities together to share, learn, inspire over two days. Learn from 50-plus cutting-edge talks and their in-depth training program how Beam languages are revolutionizing areas like IoT, blockchain, fintech, security, machine learning, and more. Elm in the Spring will be back May 1st, 2020. Elm in the Spring. All Elm, all day. Elm in the Spring is a single-track, single-day conference for developers who love Elm. Whether you're an Elm expert scaling up your production app, or you're just starting out with your first Elm project, join them for a great day of learning, teaching, and community. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionaldeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Degree. In that vein, Functional Degree now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Degree, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Degree. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionaldegree.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Proctor here with one more quick announcement. In this episode, we mentioned Gene's book, The Unicorn Project, as coming out next week. Due to the magic of recording and editing this podcast, The Unicorn Project is available today, so you should be able to find it at your favorite book retailer in hardcover or ebook form as of today. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Gene Kim. Gene, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Absolutely, and great to be on. I've spent 20 years studying high-performing technology organizations, and that was a journey that started back when I was the technical founder and CTO of a company called Tripwire in the information security space. I was there for 13 years until 2010. And the journey started studying these exemplary organizations that had the best project due date performance and development, the best operational stability in ops, best posture security and compliance. And so as you can imagine in a 20-year journey, there's many surprises, but by far the biggest for me is how it took me into the middle of the DevOps movement. And so over the last uh, seven years, I've gotten to participate in the state of DevOps report, you know, this cross-population study spanning 30,000 respondents trying to understand what high performance looks like and what are the behaviors that lead to high performance. But maybe even a bigger surprise than that was writing a book called The Phoenix Project, later the DevOps Handbook, and a book called The Unicorn Project that's coming out uh, next week. And one of the big discoveries for me is 
finding out that I'm in love with functional programming. And Clojure was the language that got me there. And just briefly about my coding history, despite for about 20 years of my career, I've self-identified as an ops person. And that was despite getting a graduate degree in computer science with a focus on compilers and high-speed networking. But I think I was always gravitated towards ops because that's where the saves were made. That's how we protected the world from careless developers and ineffective security people. But it was actually closure that sort of changed my mind. It's reintroduced the joy of coding into my daily life. And these days, I love to spend 50% of my time in a given month writing, 50% of my time hanging out with the best of the game, of which I would definitely consider this uh, an example of that. And then 20% coding, just solving problems I want to solve. And as I wrote in this uh, thing called My Love Lover to Closure, solving problems I want to solve without my code falling in on itself like a house of cards, which has been my habit for almost 30 years. <laughs> so I've never had as much fun as now. So I want to dig in a little bit. So you said you went to ops because of the save. And having read your love letter to closure, I have a feeling you're jumping back because you found you can do the saving from the coding side as well now. What was it about the early view of, I went into computer science, I'm doing software, but I don't feel like I can perform the save on the software side. I need the ops side. Because <laughs> it sounds like you're starting to recognize there's some ways, and this is from kind of getting at the love letter to Closure was like, Closure's allowing me to do some of those saves from the software side. So if I evangelize this stuff, I might be able to help save before it gets to ops. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, in fact, what an interesting question. Yeah, and I think maybe I'd have to go back even further. Yeah. I had done this independent study project when I was an undergraduate that led to the creation of something called Tripwire. And so that was a result of working for my advisor, Dr. Gene Spafford, who was the whole reason why I went to Purdue University in the first place. And the reason why I went there was because when the Internet Morris worm hit in 1987, it took down 10% of all the servers on the Internet. And so that was a piece of malicious code that was able to modify system configuration files and then allowed remote execution of malicious code. And so the unexpected side effect of that became one of the most widely used security tools for Unix. And so when we were commercializing it, that was very much meant as an intrusion detection tool for security. And one of my conclusions multiple years into that journey, and this is in the early 2000s, late 90s, was that the effectiveness of security really had less to do with the information security group as it did the operations group. So it was actually to what degree was operations truly integrating security objectives into their daily work. And that's when I started really became acutely aware of the fact that it was actually operations that was saving the customer from developers who are late on projects just shoving anything they wanted to in production. <laughs> Not because they didn't care, but you know, because they didn't have a choice, right? I think that was sort of the I think the modern way we talk about it is that's kind of a natural byproduct of the waterfall method. And so I really viewed operations as what was actually saving the customer from horrendous reliability problems, security breaches, and so forth. And yeah, you're right. That's where in that closure love letter, I actually put down kind of how many lines of code I wrote over the last 30 years. And I stopped coding for almost a decade in the 2000s. And I think what I lost touch with was just how fun coding could be, or rather, my experience at coding, you just never really could get that much done, done, um, and you would always end up with frustration. And so 
my experience with closure, as difficult as it was, and and well, let me be clear, it was the hardest thing I've ever learned. Just because, boy, you take away the ability to mutate state, <laughs> you take away the, you know, and then it being a lisp. I mean, that was really difficult. I mean, just for, you know, tens of hours, right? It still didn't look like code to me. <laughs> so it was, it was really difficult. But I've never experienced this feeling where you can just write so much with so little and just have it work. And so, yeah, I absolutely do believe that. You know, you can get so much done these days and get far better outcomes. And, you know, I make the claim in that post that it's my observation that 90% of the errors I used to make just have disappeared, right? That are associated with uncontrolled state mutation and just all the sloppiness that goes with kind of a non-functional programming style. So you start getting back into coding for some reason. Was that the exposure to closure? Because you mentioned in your love letter, you still have this other little app you use as a tool that you develop for your to-do list and all that other stuff, (laughs) if I recall, right? Exactly what it is, right? But you start coding more, you're getting there a little bit, and somehow closure gets on your radar first. You said, I think Mike Nygaard mentioned it, you said in your post, but you didn't pick it up at that point. What was the kind of evolution in a little bit more depth of getting functional programming on your radar and saying, okay, now's the time I really have to try this? What was that real prompt that took you from, eh, interesting, to there's something here. Let me dig in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, the timing is very curious. It was actually sort of in the middle of the book launch for DevOps Handbook, which came out in 2016. So that was co-authored with Jez Humble, John Willis, and Patrick Dubois. And that was great, but it was also very late. And there was something about that period where, man, I was just, I was ready for something mentally strenuous to do. So I remember picking up this book. It was the Ruby reference manual by the founder Mott's it was good. It felt kind of mentally soothing. I think sometimes you really do want something really mentally strenuous to kind of focus on. But it wasn't hard enough. But there was this line I remember, something about how many people will find it curious that Ruby strings aren't immutable. And I just kind of kind of filed it away. So after the Ruby book not being hard enough, and by the way, I love Ruby. I've been programming Ruby for about 10 years. I was like, okay, I need something harder, more difficult. And so I finally pick up a closure book that had been sitting around for a year. And it was specifically a book targeted at Ruby, Python, and Java programmers. That was just a mind-bending experience. And I remember just reading you know, with a lot of curiosity, a lot of focus. And then there was that line that was, some people might find it terrifying that the uh, double alligator sign, you know, it's like the shift left, shift left operator in Ruby, you know, the concatenation actually mutates the right-hand value of the <laughs> of the operator. And I actually remember bolting upright like at 10 p.m., <laughs> just kind of in shock, right? That's kind of the implications are sinking in. <laughs> just wondering how many times might I have used that operator, not knowing that I was actually mutating what I thought was a immutable RVAL. <laughs> and so I remember getting up early the next morning going to the web, finding a REPL and typing it in and just watching in horror. My jaw hit the ground, just confirming this terrible allegation that had been made. (laughs) And that's when I realized this is something really, really important here. And I'm not sure if I can really convey the the horror I felt. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I think in my head, I was just thinking, I've got to have, I probably made this mistake probably 20, 30 times. And there's just these little landmines in production, right? just waiting to go off because I didn't know what I was doing. And it's uh, funny, you know, I think many people, when they read the Brian Getz book, Java Concurrency in Practice, they have the same feeling. I recently read that and 
I found that also very terrifying. And I can just imagine sort of the existential dread and horror people feel <laughs> when they realize that certain concurrency primitives don't actually act the way you think. <laughs> uh, does that resonate with you? Yeah, it was one of those, <laughs> something similar, because I would be, I did some early Java, jumped into .NET, and was looking to the OO stuff and trying to figure out how to make my OO safer. A little bit of Eiffel research with the object-oriented, <laughs> uh, Bertrand Myers book, object-oriented mm. software construction, I think. And seeing like, hey, there's some contracts here. How do I make some of this safe with preconditions and postconditions? And then eventually it was just like, okay, let's, I'm looking at something else. Do I go small talk for <laughs> something to understand and go like, this thing's pretty much pure OO? Or do I go something different and maybe closure was the, the list for a closure was the one because it was like, okay, that's an old thing. What can we learn from? And part of that was like, oh, this is completely different. I'm not going to fight the battles of like, oh, no, this is what OO really is across the masses. If I'm trying to understand the fundamentals, it's like, oh, most people aren't familiar with functional programming. So that's an easier kind of like sell of like, how do you treat immutability from like domain driven design and a bunch of Fowler's patterns and everything else? Like, no, immutability and value objects are a good thing in OO. Right. Well, it's hard to sell that for someone who knows OO. So I was like, well, if that's how it is in functional, maybe the principles are there and you can like flank someone without saying, well, what you think <laughs> you know is wrong, more of a, oh, here's another way to think about this that kind of reinforces what you think you know is wrong without saying yeah. what you think you know is wrong. And you just reminded me of something else, which was sort of a more qualitative thing, which was that I'd never programmed in a list before and I'd never programmed in a REPL like what Clojure offered. And it's something that I think is difficult to explain in words, but I mean, there's just a feeling of you're inside the code base and you're building it piece by piece and you're kind of sticking it into the program. The notion of like immutable state, but the program is actually very, very mutable. You can actually inspect everything inside of your editor. It was just intoxicating. And it's, so there's a whole notion of, you know, so that was like a order of magnitude kind of more fun, <laughs> right, in terms of the interactivity and just what the programming experience felt like. I mean, that was more joyful than anything I could recall in my programming career. And so that also had a lot to do with gravitating towards closure. And you had this kind of interesting question. So like what made it more than just kind of intellectual stimulation? I think it was this need to solve my own problems. There are like so many things that, you know, we all have tools that we use in our daily work and often we're held hostage by the vendor. You know, you beg and plead and bully and just try to like ask for something that you need. <laughs> and, you know, when you're totally at the mercy of the vendor, right, often you never get what you want, right? And so just the ability to actually solve these problems myself, extract data from one terrible tool to put it into another terrible tool, right? <laughs> and this is incredibly useful and satisfying to be able to do that, right? And um, not be dependent on other people. I had this one problem I need to solve. I'm inside the Gmail, Google Apps ecosystem, and their vacation email responder will always send a repeat message after a week. And so th that upsets my friends, right? Because I have to turn my on just so I can set people's expectations that sometimes replies are slow. And so my friends have to deal with this stupid message every week. So I finally wrote my own, <laughs> right? Just uh, you know, to actually store every email so they only get one response. And it's actually kind of my level of ambition for solving certain problems I have grown. And so the, uh, one app that I use a lot, which is something we've, a bunch of us, we wrote three times. 
you know, so that you can take notes and tweet at the same time, which is actually very useful when you're writing books. And first iteration, Objective-C ran on the iPad, mysteriously stopped working in iOS 7. <laughs> so uh, I rewrote it in TypeScript and React. And it went from like 3,000 lines to 1,500 lines of code. And then rewrote it again in ClojureScript and Reframe, kind of like the Redux type framework. And that went from 1,500 lines to 500 lines. And it was just one of those aha moments where, holy cow, it's simple enough where I can sort of keep the whole, maybe I can't keep the whole thing in my head, but you know, whatever I need to do, I can keep at least that part in my head. And I've never experienced that, even in like the TypeScript React implementation where you have state splattered across every component. I mean, I think even at that stage, you know, that was actually problematic. And so, yeah, it just became increasingly fun. And the problems I felt like I was able to tackle just kept on growing. So you have the shock of, oh, my God, I've got all these bugs from mutability. And you're finding <laughs> the joy of the REPL. I'm assuming those two helped drive you past any of those hardships. But what were the main kind of stumbling points that when you were getting into functional programming and, and or closure, either take either one, but as you're getting in there, what are some of those things that you're like, oh, the expectation of this may not have been set right? If I would have <laughs> like known this, kind of advice to your earlier self learning in that says, okay, yes, this is tricky, but if we reframe, pun not intended, but it kind yeah. of works too, if we reframe this stuff, to think about it in a different way, this would help set that stage of how do we think about this thing and not make it so hard for people who are coming in now or you when you're coming in there? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy, that is a great question. So I'm going to cite two kind of authorities. So when we talk about flow and joy, right? The researcher who basically created that sort of body of knowledge, right, is a psychologist named Dr. Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. And so he gave one of the best TED Talks ever. And so he calls that state of flow, right? You're having so much fun doing something that you lose sense of time, maybe even lose sense of self, right? That kind of transcendental kind of experience. And I think that's a feeling that we often associate with coding. So it turns out that there's actually a, another body of work that could be seen in apparent conflict of that. And that's the work of Dr. Anders Ericsson. And so he wrote a book called... The body work is often called acquired learning, and his theory is that the way that you become good at something is through deliberate practice and through the pain of repetition, right? And so there was a great book called Grit by Dr. Angela Duckworth that basically kind of reconciled the two, saying flow is kind of the reward of when you really practice to get good at something. And so, sorry for the roundabout answer here, but you know, I think what I would have, if I had been a little more deliberate, if I had thought through kind of like, what is a real best learning path to get to any sort of competency? And I don't claim any great competency at closure, right? but enough to where I feel like I can solve problems in a way I've never been able to do before. I think what Dr. Anders Ericsson would have advised is you have to have a coach. <laughs> you have to have someone better than you, right, to kind of give you pointers so you can model your behaviors after them, and then certainly do practice. And so one of the things I try to do in the closure love letter is sort of kind of show what the breadcrumbs were for me, where I finally felt like I was on the trail to find patterns to model after. And I would say a lot of them are podcasts. Yours, it would have been incredibly handy. You had a, a person on your podcast, David Kuntz, who does the Lambda cast, which I started about a year ago. And I listened to them almost back to back every day over the summer. 
And I think that would have given a lot of the underpinning theory. There was another podcast called the Functional Design Enclosure uh, podcast by Christoph Newman and Nate Jones. They kind of work through problems orally. And so I think it's kind of at the very limits of what you can do without a whiteboard. And it's just, I found myself listening to that, just almost smacking myself on the forehead while driving because they're kind of describing the exact stumbling points I had. And <laughs> you know, they're you know, describing it on the other side of experience, right, as veterans. So uh, yeah, I think anyone who is studying up through podcasts and watching kind of these YouTube series where they're actually showing experienced people coding, I, I think is just this incredible accelerator that would have helped me overcome my own sticking points. Like just even the question, like, how do you solve problems without iterating and mutating state? <laughs> how do you even think about like something like a game, like tic-tac-toe? Like, how do you even solve that? What does it even look like? <laughs> and holy cow, some of the tooling issues, right? Much better now, but uh, as a total newbie entering into the JavaScript ecosystem, not even, you know, with a barest grasp of what NPM is and, <laughs> you know, no idea what Babel or Browserify or, you know, Grunt. It's <laughs> just, you know, that there was that article like learning JavaScript in 2018 or whatever, 2017, <laughs> just the bewildering kind of names that fly at you and just trying to make sense of what each one of these things are and why one is supposed to be better than the other, to what degree they overlap or conflict. <laughs> so, yeah, just how can you possibly learn that without an expert? who brings their own opinions and experience uh, to bear. And actually, I do remember like at one point, probably six months into learning closure, where I kind of stumbled into the category theory, the cats library, <laughs> right? And then um, kind of stumbling into the Haskell tutorials and then really trying to understand like, all right, what is a monoid, a functor, a monad? <laughs> and then, you know, I think after a week giving up and backpedaling and saying, maybe not this month, right? I mean, just someone to sort of guide you to that path and say, Young Padawan, there is goodness there, but this is not your time. <laughs> so it sounds like you drank the Kool-Aid. And I say that having read the Unicorn Project and seeing the excerpts early on that you were publishing out. And with that, when you go back now, and I'm sure you pull a Maxine to some extent, when you go back, you're like, I see this other code. I see this. It's not enclosure. <laughs> How have you found it refreshing your thinking? Because she goes in and she's like, hey, what if we play with this? And you have her do it a couple times in the book. So it feels like that's something you've done in personal experience where you're like, hey, maybe you're not coaching someone else. Maybe you're coaching yourself again. I'm back in JavaScript world or I'm back in Objective-C <laughs> or I'm back in my C, C++ or whatever. What are you finding that it changes your way of thinking now when you go back to other languages having done closure? <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't be judgmental about what anybody else creates. <laughs> so that having been said, boy, is it an eye-opener, right? I can imagine myself sort of pair programming with myself six years ago. <laughs> and, and probably uh, my internal, you know, this is like inside the head voice. Right? It's like, oh, oh cow, holy cow, that's, uh, that's a vulgar, primitive way of approaching the problem. <laughs> but uh, you know, that's something that we can't really, we shouldn't say outside our head, right? Instead, it really is, oh, hey, can I show you a better way of iterating? Let's at least use iterators or list comprehension, or <laughs> which I've always been a fan of uh, in Python and Ruby. But so the Unicorn Project, the, the protagonist, Maxine, you know, her job really is to, she's a developer and an architect of the highest order, and she's exiled into this horrendous project, right? This horrible Phoenix project that was actually chronicled, you know, six years ago. And her job is to really... She knows what greatness looks like. 
and she's surrounded by not greatness. <laughs> and so she doesn't need, it's not like she's Jason Bourne or a detective. She knows, right? No one can convince her that this is the way it should be. And so kind of the mental frame of it is like, you know, she's like Tom Hanks in Castaway <laughs> or Robinson Crusoe, where despite all her amazing skills, she can do nothing. <laughs> she can't do a build because no one has builds and you know, everything's so tightly coupled together. She can't do anything by herself, right? She has to work with other teams. She can't do her own deployments. She can't do her own tests. <laughs> Just that feeling of powerlessness, despite her incredible judgment, taste, experience, authority. And so I did get great delight in these scenes where she's actually getting a chance to work with, at first it was the middle school girls, helping them on the Python statistics programs, right? Computing interquartile ranges, right? Saying, oh, you have an off by one error. Here's how to do it in a way that you'll <laughs> never have that error again. I'm sort of laughing just because off by one errors are such a horrendous problem, right? The better case is that you miss one, you miss the last element. The worst case is you go over by one and <laughs> yeah, that's a classic injection vector for uh, <laughs> you know, for uh, overflows and so forth, right? When she joins the uh, Data Hub team, she gets to fix a multi-threading error on her first day <laughs> just because she can think through the problem better kind of using functional programming principles, getting rid of all external state, getting rid of all the IO and just being able to replicate the problem every time, solve it without mutating states. Just got great delight in that. And then later, right, a scene that was actually inspired by uh, a conversation I had with Mike Nygaard where he said he was once able to reduce 3,000 lines of Java code down to 500 just by using closure. And then when he started using the actual closure built-in data structures, got down to 50. <laughs> uh, I thought that was such a great example that, you know, that kind of made it into the book. Anyway, so yeah, my hope is that those scenes will trigger memories or experiences that will make developers go, holy cow, what is this incredible power Maxine speaks of? <laughs> and maybe I can learn it too and get the same sort of outcomes. Uh, and, and by the way, this is a question I've been dying to ask you ever since our first email conversation is, to what degree did those scenes resonate with you as someone who's been doing functional programming for far longer than me, right? How did it come across? I found a lot of truth in those. I just changed jobs, but the last job was doing front-end web development in JavaScript, slowly at least trying to introduce TypeScript just for some kind of <laughs> sanity, because I knew Reason and Closure and some of these other more pure functional stuff wasn't going to be there, but we had RAM to JS. And that's a nice functional programming library. Brian Longsdorf talked about it and a couple, I had a couple of the guests talk about it, but they're like, this is underscore and low dash fixed up where the, yeah. <laughs> where the stuff that changes goes at the end. So you can partially apply your function, but it, I'm working with people like, okay, we can do this. And they're like, well, you map chain, map filter, reduce something like, okay, we proctor, we need your, whatever map map whatever 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 and they'll like call me over like okay so here's the data structure that you have now and you want it i was like and i'm doing the mental puzzle and transformer in the head of okay how do i take essentially map filter reduce and things like that and change the shape of the data and it's like here look we can do this pretty pure without having to like, okay, did we do a bunch of this stuff? And they're like, they're like, you pretty much had that right the first time, except you flipped the two arguments of path or something or prop or, and it's like, oh, yeah. no, that's right. I always, because they were inconsistent <laughs> between the two, it's like, okay, which one's the default and which one's the path? And how do you get it to work the first time? I was like, you start to see the shape of the data 
and you do this a while, and you can start to recognize, do you want to need a map, a filter, or reduce? It's going to be some variation of that to some extent. And how do I compose those together? Either through the forward pipe operator that you were talking about, enclosure or compose or something else, where it's, you start to recognize how much simpler it can be if you can just take advantage of all the stuff that's already there without having to worry about, did I grab all these keys right or something like that and put right. it into I, the new dictionary? So what was their reaction? Was it gratitude? Was it awe? Was it amazement? Was it resentment? Was it bugger off? You know, we're sorry we called you in the first place. What have you found those reactions to be? I got some bugger offs. <laughs> and those were the people I weren't working directly with when they looked at some of the pull requests. They're like, what? Like, <laughs> That's right. Okay, yeah. Sorry. They had a running joke with me about like, okay, Ramda Rain Man. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> we had to make jokes to the scenes like 200, 242 toothpicks. Right, in the box and that scene on Rain Man. For anybody who hasn't seen it, it's at a certain point, I've gotten to this point where I can just see that transformation of the puzzle and the head and see how the puzzle pieces. So like, Okay, someday I will get there. They're like, I've got to start. I think I've got to start. Tell me what I'm missing, and I'll help them with their missing. The ones I was working with closely were starting to get a sense of, hey, yeah, it's really valuable. This is like, right. I know I can do this. I'm yeah. on my way there. Let's call Proctor in yeah. and get it there, because whatever we do with this, it might take a minute to understand to begin with, but it's going to be a whole lot less time than trying to debug why it went wrong. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I love this phrase from the French philosopher of tools, is it good to think with? And I think people do appreciate and recognize when someone's thinking in a better way. I think in my mind, right, that's what's resulting to the call proctor, right? This is a proctor problem, <laughs> right? Hit the proctor button. And if you're going with the philosopher, this is one of the reasons I was wondering when you go back to look at languages. Otherwise, there was the, the quote of, the language changes how you think about the world. And they were talking about spoken languages in reference to like, oh, certain languages have these kind of terms, other languages don't have this, but I've seen it apply to computer science and software languages where it's like, you learn a closure, you're going to think differently, you learn Haskell. Eric Norman has talked about how his learning Haskell has influenced his closure where he's more focused on I don't have types, but I don't know that I necessarily need them myself because I think about the types when I design that. If you're doing OO, you're doing other thing, you're doing Erlang, you're doing whatever language it is, I've noticed there's that quote as well, which is kind of where I was going with that original question was, how are you finding that stuff as well? Actually, maybe just uh, kind of on that Eric Norman reference. So I'm excited about this book he's doing just because I think he's taking a very different take on functional programming and his notion of actions data and calculations. And I think some people far smarter than me have sort of nodded and said, yeah, that's kind of at the core of it. So is it side effects or effects or effectful or whatever? It's like, oh, that's an action, <laughs> right? It's uh, data and calculations. That's oh, calculations are pure functions. I think that's exciting because I think it does make functional programming more accessible and yet still is consistent with the body of knowledge as it exists right now. But I'll tell you one thing that I have learned. So I actually got a chance to meet, you had on your show, Dr. Simon Peyton Jones, which was uh, amazing. Uh, congratulations for getting him on. I actually had a conversation with Dr. John Launchberry. So he actually worked with Dr. Peyton Jones. He was one of the authors of GHT, Glasgow Haskell Compiler. 
and asked him how to solve a problem that I couldn't quite figure out <laughs> how to solve. If you don't mind, I'll just share just because it's so embarrassing. One of the problems I tasked myself to do was in DevOps Handbook, I wanted to create a word cloud of all the words that show up. And so I took the bibliography. So imagine it's just a, it's a list of citation. And the problem was that I had a lot of IBIDs in it. So an IBID is just repeat the last citation. So you can't have a word cloud with IBID in it, right? You have to basically, you know, duplicate the last entry. It took me like two and a half weeks to write that enclosure just because, <laughs> and I, I, I could imagine the 10 lines of Ruby it would take to write it, you know, in an imperative way. And I just couldn't get my head around how to do it right. And it's probably been 20 years since I've actually used recursion <laughs> and uh, base state. So I finally did get working and, you know, I just had tests everywhere just to brute force my way there. And so for almost a year, I was asking experienced people, like, how would you solve this program? And I got some vague answers and, you know, I was like, all right, can we set up an hour sometime and just let's solve it together? Anyway, still kind of on a quest to solve this problem. So I talked to John Lunchberry <laughs> and I asked him, like, how would you solve this problem in Haskell? And he asked me two questions that just blew my mind I, and, you know, changed the way I, I think about programs forever and ever. He asked me, what are the types of your inputs and outputs? And so the answer was array of string to array of string. And then he asked, what is the correct answer when you have the input of just one element, IBID? <laughs> I was like, oh, geez, uh, probably, probably error, right? And then he proceeded to whiteboard out the answer, right? Uh, four lines. And then I got to ask him, like, why did you ask those questions? <laughs> right? And he said, it is a trap that many software engineers run into where they focus on the algorithm, right? Like, how, how do you solve the algorithm? But then they never kind of ask the more important thing of like, you know, what is the shape of the inputs and the outputs? And then the second question was like, you know, we really got to the, the termination state, the termination case of the uh, recursion. <laughs> and ever since then, I mean, I just, I find that the way I code is the first thing I do is think about inputs and outputs. And so it's kind of a curious thing to do in Closure when you don't have real compiler help. You can use closure spec to do that. And I actually do use that, but it is astonishing, right? It's like that's independent of language. Boy, does it sure clear your thinking up when you first think about your inputs and outputs and what the shape should be. And that's not ad hoc. <laughs> it was uh, one of the most illuminating moments of, of my professional career. I'm choking that in for a second because <laughs> the gut of it resonates with me about once you actually learn to think about your data and then your base cases and things like that, as a lot of the listeners talk about with recursion. And I hate to jump away from that, but I do want to get back to the upcoming Unicorn Project. Oh, yeah. So it's six years since the Phoenix Project. You decided to write another book from the developer side. <laughs> How much of that was other things and other learnings from maybe the state of DevOps reports and things like that and what you've seen and... How much of that was learning functional programming and the data focus that you've seen that helped drive the fact that you think there needed to be a book there? And part of that is, is the Unicorn Project your underground way of selling functional programming and data focus and things like that into developers in the same way that you were kind of selling <laughs> DevOps into the business side via the story and narration and what were kind of some of the turns that 
pulled all those threads together that said, I've got this other idea and functional programming I've latched onto and I want to advocate for this and show examples of someone taking advantage of this and citing those references. How did that kind of all fit together to make the perfect form of opting to write another book? Yeah, yeah. Right, for sure. Yeah, I'll be totally shameless and say, yes, absolutely. In my fondest, most aspirations and ambitions, that the Unicorn Project helps elevate the visibility of functional programming. I would love it if that were the case and would advertise as bluntly as I could. <laughs> so I started the Unicorn Project before... Oh, geez. No, actually, no, you're right. Uh, so, I st- so the earliest portions of the writing went all the way back to 2014. So that was actually even before the DevOps Handbook came out. But full-time writing started in earnest by December... 2016, you know, certainly by February 2017, that's all I'm working on. So yeah, by then I have already started struggling through closure, <laughs> right? Uh, probably I haven't even, maybe I just finished the IBID program and I'm realizing how wretched and uh, <laughs> imperfect my understanding is. But that is actually when I started studying the Rich Hickey videos. And I think what really started, if there's a theme to the Unicorn Project, way I talk about it externally is it really is an exploration of all the invisible structures required to make a developer productive. So that coupled to everything, right? And what are the necessary technical practices you need just to do basic work done? You need builds and ideally automated tests. And you can write your own tests, run your own tests, deploy by yourself, run in production, and not be coupled to the whims of, say, infrastructure teams that are so busy, they don't have time for you. But in Rich Hickey's, I think it was his Java 1 presentation, I think it was in 2012, Yeah, he made this comment about how different, to use his words to the best of my recollection, right, is when Twitter changes their API, they don't ask you for your permission, right? They just change it, and you're not really coupled to it. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're coupled to the extent that it will break you, right, if you don't change with them. But it's not like it is coupled <laughs> very loosely compared to, say, how we did things in my day, right, of Corba <laughs> and Armai and so forth, or SunRPC. And kind of his claim was, why can't we use data internally so that we can get pieces truly decoupled from each other? And he said, if things are coupled together, you have to take everyone in the organization out to lunch to make a change. And that just hit me. I was like, oh, like that's the lunch factor, right? That's just like, You can measure coupling by how many people do we need to take out to lunch to get our work done, right? Is it a two-pizza team, meaning we can do it within a team? Or do we have to take out the entire building (laughs) just to buy their cooperation, their approval, because we have to coordinate, prioritize, synchronize, deconflict, blah, 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 right? Uh, We've got to put project managers on it. So I think the big theme is about coupling. And I think I learned so much about coupling from Clojure and how functional programming treats it. Is that, you know, kind of different than a object-oriented orientation, right? Uh, which, And I'm not bashing object orientation, but boy, it was such an eye-opener. It was so different than the way I thought about how to construct programs. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, the Unicorn Project is the Phoenix Project retold from the developer's perspective. The major concepts are around how do we liberate developers and get them decoupled so they can actually get what they want done, done. <laughs> and data orientation and also... Yeah, I think there's one other theme that I'm really delighted by, which is that this is kind of, I think the DevOps movement rightly got its claim to fame because they recognize that 
it took an enormous amount of effort to get code to where it needed to go, which is in production, so that customers are getting value. There's this other orthogonal problem of how do you get data from where it resides, which is often in systems of record, data warehouses, these horrible ETL jobs, right? you know, these you know, very brittle schemas where you make one change and every report in the entire enterprise breaks. How do we get data from there into someplace else where developers can get access to it and use it in their daily work? And so that kind of points this trend towards event sourcing, things like Kafka, where you can actually truly democratize data and create this totally different way of teams working together. So that to me is represents in my mind, like the ultimate decoupling where you can really truly liberate teams from each other. Part of my gut that it corresponded with some of that closure's time was when you said, I've started finding the developer's perspective. You've written it from the developer's perspective. So I figured there was that timing of, okay, now I'm doing more development than more upside. <laughs> so I'm, because it feels authentic from the yeah. developer perspective and not just an ops person who's looking at how developers work too. That's why I figured there might have been some circulation and coordination of that spark there. Absolutely. The way I self-identify after 25 plus years went from being an ops person to a developer, right? And, and so that was so much informed by kind of all these aha moments that I had in a very short amount of time. And again, I don't want to make any representations that I'm a good developer, <laughs> that I, I'm even experienced as a developer, but for me, the learnings have been so profound that I felt it was very important. We're coming up on time, but maybe we can cover this quickly. You kind of talk at the end of the book with your data, and you mentioned the Kafka just now, and the event sourcing and some of this stuff. How have you found it from your perspective of the ops side and everything else, and again, both experience, on the functional architecture? Because I know there was a lot of DevOps stuff about like immutable servers, treat them so you can kill them and spin them up. That's one kind of functional architecture. Then you have the event sourcing where everything's immutable, like your bank statement, and you never go correct something. You just put compensating events in and things like that. How are you finding, when you take a step back, some of those lessons applying at the higher level when you're thinking about the system's view as a developer and ops person who has to support it kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that kind of... uh... In the very end, right, kind of the, you know, Maxine's ultimate kind of goal is kind of this grand decoupling. And that really is modeled after something in real life. It was actually Scott Haven's presentation that he did at DevOps Enterprise. So he was from Jet.com, got acquired by Walmart. And so his remit was to rebuild all of Walmart's inventory management systems, basically everything from item lookup, item availability, available to ship, available to promise, like all these things. And then, you know, warehouse management, shipment, cross shipment and so forth. And he describes this incredible story of like how, as part of this effort, they went from whenever someone would look up on an e-commerce site, whether it was Jet.com or Walmart.com, is an item available. In the old days, right, not so long ago, that would take 23 deeply nested API calls, all of which must be tier one services with, uh, you know, four or five nines availability, <laughs> Right. To be able to say, you know, is this available and how long will it take to ship? And so this is incredibly expensive, incredibly complex, could not be tested in isolation. And you know, he's described by using kind of this event sourcing pattern where essentially they turn 23 deeply nested API calls to one by pre-computing basically all of the permutations of inventory, region, zip code, <laughs> shipment options. 
and so forth, they put that into a key value store. <laughs> and so you needed one API lookup call to a key value store, which is arguably a very simple thing to keep running in production reliably. And he did this basically with a team of five people writing in F-sharp. <laughs> and so like, what an incredible argument to show that functional programming applies not just in the small, but you know, in the vast scale of system to system that span the Walmart enterprise. Cheaper, faster, more reliable, and something you can actually understand and update with some level of safety. I mean, it was just this grand story for that. That, that wasn't actually a thought experiment. That was just almost transcribing Scott Haven's talk. <laughs> And I think you uh, left out one important thing for that key value store when you talk about that is you get a lot less middle of the night calls right. when something goes wrong because it's just a key value store. And if it's not right. there, you're like, mm, sorry, unable to do this at this time versus like, oh, here's a bunch of critical systems and all 23 of those teams have to be on support or That's right. <laughs> God forbid you're on you're on half of those teams just because you're a small company. When you start at jet.com, you're like, Okay, which of these 12 that I'm responsible for could it be and have to troubleshoot right. because I wake up at, people called it the 2 a.m. test. I called it the worst case you're getting out of the bar at 2 a.m. test and you're <laughs> drunk because you've had that kind of day and now you have to troubleshoot a problem. So some of that stuff is like that isolation and the purity and locality that you talked about as the values. You're like, yeah. Okay, something's broken. There's only a handful of places this could have changed. But there's that nice serenity of if I can have a simpler thing that has the side effects and things isolated where things can break in crazy yeah. ways, the on-call might not seem so bad if I have... Because in, in your book, you also talk about like, wait, this means we're going to have to be wearing a pager. That's like, well, <laughs> if, you, if you do it right, the pager might not be so bad because you actually have confidence in your code as you were talking about, you're like, I can actually have a mostly big picture of my app, your note-taking tweeting app, versus yep. uh, what was the 30,000 lines or whatever that yep, it was yep, before? Yep. Yeah, this didn't make it into the book, but one of the things that Scott Haven talked about was after the Walmart acquisition, they actually had this production incident where the Kafka cluster blew up. I mean, like, gone, right? There was no Kafka cluster, and they had to rebuild it from scratch. And so how did the story end? They rebuilt the Kafka cluster, rewound the time to when the Kafka cluster was up, and replayed all the events. <laughs> no downtime. <laughs> it's just this stunning, the stunning value of like what that simplicity enables. I mean, it just defies belief for many, including me, until I heard the story. So we're coming up on our time. Is there anything you want to cover, any topics to promote whatever coming up in your book? And hopefully we'll get that. The universe willing, it'll come out the same day since I publish on Tuesdays, and that's when books get published, just as coincidence. But <laughs> is there anything besides stuff you want to talk about and promote for yourself or appearances that you want to encourage people, let them know, topics that you think we didn't cover that you want to at least touch on? Thanks for asking. Yeah, I think it would be just a notion of the five ideals. I mean, so the this is what I weaved into the book is just, you know, here's the five ideals that the unicorn project tries to promote. The first ideal is locality and simplicity. To get things decoupled, you do need things localized so that you can make change in one place instead of all the places, right? And that requires decomplecting, right? Uh, making things truly independent of each other. And I think that the outcome of that is focus, flow, and joy, right? And I think uh, we spent the first uh, half hour just talking about how joyful programming can be when we liberate ourselves from um, horrible ways of thinking that lead to horrible outcomes. And that whole notion of flow from Dr. Mihaly, Cheeks, and Mihaly. I mean, that's just, that's what 
joy really means to me. And it's not just joy for personal enjoyment's sake, right? It's like about workplace engagement. You want people to have fun doing what they're doing, bringing their best energies to the work, solving the problem, getting gratification out of that. Third is improvement of daily work being even more important than daily work itself. And this gets the heart of what does it take to eliminate or not eliminate, but just reduce technical debt to where it's manageable, right? I mean, if we have a hairball architecture where everything's entangled with each other, we need time away from features to be able to clean that up so that we can create a simpler environment that we can work in, be productive and get, have more fun in, right? Uh, which we all know go hand in hand. The fourth ideal is psychological safety. The state of DevOps report has shown decisively that culture is one of the top predictors of performance. And it was really gratifying to go back and sort of look into the work of Google in Project Oxygen, Project WeWork, where in their multi-year quest to figure out what makes great teams great, number one on the list was always psychological safety. And then fifth is uh, customer focus. We need our best energies being focused on what the customer values, things that create lasting, durable, competitive advantage for our organizations. And if customers aren't willing to pay for it, then chances are it is not actually valuable for the customer. It's probably more valuable just for a silo. And so that's the notion of core versus context. Core is what customers value are willing to pay for. Context is everything else. So it might be mission critical, but it's still context. And the risk is that context can starve core. So yeah, those five ideals are really meant to sort of be the key themes that showcase not only the problems, but the way out. So the non-ideals versus the ideals. I'm glad we managed to sneak that in as well, at least for the tease. So if anybody doesn't manage to get to the book or gets to the book way too late, they've at least got the exposure to the five ideals and (laughs) can potentially keep that in the back of their mind. As like, I've heard these things. This sounds nice. If your reading list gets like mine, where you're like, yes, I want to get that book. Yes, I want to get that book. And you just get a (laughs) stack of books. You're like, it's random sort and it never gets pulled out for a long time which is sadly where the Phoenix Project went, being (laughs) growing up in a bunch of small companies where you kind of did whatever role it was. You're like, yeah, is this DevOps? Technically, no, but unofficially, yes, because you're like, what is the role that I need to do to get this done? If the one ops person is overwhelmed and he needs help with something, you're going and restarting IIS or whatever if you need to. Absolutely. That sounds like DevOps to me. So sadly, it was on the book list early. It got escalated to the top way too late. But looking forward to this, looking forward to the five ideals and hoping those will get traction as well. And just the spread of some of the functional programming ideas that you're in there. So it was really excited to have you on, especially after your love letter to closure. So you've got a lot of things going on. Upcoming talks. We might go another hour for your, all your upcoming talks the way you, uh, <laughs> the way you were out there, but. Upcoming tops, anything else you want to promote or publish? We're going to talk, we got the Unicorn Project coming out. Yeah, I think uh, if you have any interest in what we talked about, 60% of the book is available online and also the first eight chapters in an audiobook format. So uh, I'll send you the, the link so you can put them in the show notes. But yeah, if uh, this is something that I think should resonate with most developers, I'm just, I'm very proud of the Phoenix Project. I think it helped kind of uh, catalyze the DevOps movement and as, much acclaim as the Phoenix Project has gotten. I'm actually prouder of the Unicorn Project. It, I actually like it more than the Phoenix Project. Uh, I think it's better in so many different dimensions that I care about. So uh, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm delighted that the book is coming out. And thanks for helping get the word out. And I sit in nervous anticipation waiting to see what the feedback is. <laughs> You've got a couple talks. You mentioned 
you're going to the closure conch. Are there any yeah. talks upcoming or past in the recent that you would direct people to if they can't oh, yeah. make it in person that you want to say, hey, go check out some of these talks, even if it's other people's talks, if you want to promote that and plug someone else's work? Oh, for sure. I'm going to send you the best of DevOps Enterprise 2019 Vegas, including the Scott Havens talk, the talk from Adidas, how they're building a uh, operations infrastructure and data platform. Yeah, there's so many talks. I will choose the best ones that I think really represent the stories that truly inspired the Unicorn Project. So that book is really inspired by and dedicated to these amazing journeys that are happening inside the DevOps Enterprise community. So uh, uh, I will send you my top five links of uh, talks that are not me, but I think the people that I think are representing the best in the game right now. I would make sure to get those added to the show notes for you then, if you will send those over. Yes, sir. Any last call to action while you have the audience here before we let you go? Nothing except for maybe the reiteration that I should be the example that I hope when people listen to this, they think, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> and that's really meant to be the, that was a truly the intention behind the Closure Load Lover and why it was so important to me to get these functional program principles embedded into the Unicorn Project. It's just such a better way to think with. And I just have no doubt that, that these principles, they're inevitable, inexorable, and will undoubtedly improve the outcomes of everything that we developers do every day. And then the last main question for you is, where can people find you online to follow along, keep up to date, keep going with everything that you're sharing and learning and the best places to check you and keep up to date with what's going on in your world? Without a doubt, best way to reach me is probably uh, Twitter. I'm Real Gene Kim. And you can also see what I'm up to on LinkedIn. So Twitter and LinkedIn. I'll make sure to get those added to the show notes as well so people can find you. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Gene, for taking your time to join me today. It's a pleasure was talking with you. You've been on my radar, but I haven't been quite sure how to sneak you in under any kind of pretense until I saw that talk from the DevOps Virtual Summit and your love letter to closure. So those <laughs> kind of gave me the excuse to reach out and have you fit in in the box of Functional Geekery. So thank you for those. And thank you for being a guest today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Oh, man. Likewise. Thank you, Proctor. And a big high five. <laughs> Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.